Word of God, first in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. And we'll read the verses 1 through 34. This is the word of God. At, at that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines, and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant, and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together, a great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back, that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented, and after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth. 
Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Set up road markers for yourself. Make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing on the earth, a woman encircles a man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Once more they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities, when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together, and the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. At this I, that's Jeremiah, awoke and looked, and my sleep was pleasant to me. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with them, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So far from Jeremiah, we'll also read a short part of the Gospel of John, John chapter 2. This is also the text for this morning. John 2, verses 1 through 12. John 2, beginning at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
When the, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So far from the word of God. As we reflect on what we have read, let's also ask God for a blessing by singing together from Psalm 34, stanza 6. As mentioned, the text for this, after, this, this morning is John 2, the verses 1 through 12. We won't read those verses again now, but if you like, you may keep your Bibles open as we will be working through them verse by verse. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, John's gospel opens with some amazing and glorious statements about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 1, Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. Jesus is the life of mankind. Jesus is the word become flesh. Jesus is the one that John the Baptist pointed to and said, this is the one who was coming who is greater than himself. That was chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, we're about to see Jesus' first sign. That's what verse 11 tells us. This was the first of Jesus' signs, which he did at Cana in Galilee. So what's it going to be? After chapter 1, we assume it's probably going to be something amazing, something glorious, something big, something that points us to the kingdom of God. Well, if that's what you're expecting... Chapter 2 is somewhat surprising. What is Jesus' first sign? Well, he changes water into wine at a friend's wedding because the wine ran out. Now, sure, that is impressive. But at the same time, it seems sort of mundane, worldly. It doesn't seem to have anything, obviously, to do with the kingdom of God. You might have expected maybe a healing or fire to come down from heaven like it happened with Elijah. Something more obviously God-oriented or kingdom-oriented. And if we know anything about the Apostle John who wrote this gospel, that should surprise us. Because mundane and worldly is not at all how John describes the ministry of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't at all present Jesus as simply a miracle worker who impresses the crowds. Over and over again, in fact, John shows how everyone else was thinking at a mundane and worldly level. And the Lord Jesus is the one who constantly reorients their perspective toward God. Think of the the woman at the well in in chapter 4. Jesus promises her living water and all she can think of is, is water to drink. Literal water. Or think even later here in in chapter 2, 
verse 18, where he tells the people, destroy this temple and I will build it up in three days. And all they can think about is, is the physical temple that was there, when in fact he was talking about something much more important, the sacrifice of his body. Or think later when the Lord Jesus fed the 5,000 people and they immediately went to make him king, not because they were brought to repentance by his teaching, but because he gave them food. So almost everything that the Lord Jesus says or does in the Gospel of John carries a much deeper meaning and is intended to make important points about the kingdom of God, even though people more often than not don't seem to get it. So if we know that about the ministry of the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, that should leave us expecting to see the same thing here in chapter 2 in his first sign, even if it doesn't jump out at us immediately on the first reading. So that's our question for this morning. What is the Lord Jesus teaching us here in this sign? Well, let me summarize the answer in a sentence, and then we'll work through the text to see it there in the verses in front of us. This is what the Lord Jesus is teaching us. He promises to turn the stale water of the law into sweet, delicious wine of rejoicing. I'll show you in a moment where we get that from as we turn to our text. And we'll notice that as the Lord Jesus does this, he directs us to three things. First, he directs us to God's agenda and not anybody else's. Second, he directs us to a new covenant, not the old covenant. And third, he directs us to himself as the glorious fulfillment of God's salvation. So first we see he directs us to God's agenda, not anyone else's. Verse 1 tells us that these events took place on the third day, or you could also translate that three days later. And if we count backwards, that places us six, maybe seven days from the first time when we meet John the Baptist in chapter 1. Depends on how you count the days and the evenings and so forth. Well, the wedding here is taking place in Cana which our text tells us is in Galilee. It's good to remember that is outside of the heartland of Israel. It's like Nathaniel said already earlier, can anything good come out of Galilee? So by beginning his ministry here and not in Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus is already making an important point about the relative insignificance of one's pedigree or one's place of birth or one's social status. The gospel is for all people, regardless of nationality, ethnicity, or social status. Those who dwelt in darkness, as the prophet Isaiah said, have now seen a great light. Well, our text tells us that Mary was invited to this wedding, as well as Jesus and his disciples. Interestingly, there's, there's no mes- mention of Joseph at all. It's, and it's not the only place in the gospel or in the other gospels either where only Mary gets mentioned as well as Jesus' brothers and sisters, but no Joseph. So there's an old tradition that says Joseph actually probably died when Jesus was younger, sometime before Jesus began his earthly ministry. And these verses give support to that theory. Well, the fact that Mary and Jesus were invited suggests it was probably a, a wedding of a friend or a relative. And that makes sense also considering that it was near their hometown in Galilee. Verse 3 tells us that as the wedding proceeded, 
the wine ran out. It's a very serious situation. It was the groom's job to supply the wine, and it would have been a huge embarrassment for the wine to run out. In fact, some commentators say the groom could have actually been sued for running out of wine because these ceremonies were all prearranged by contracts and different people were responsible for different elements. So it's a very serious situation for the, for the groom. So Mary, we read, goes to Jesus and tells him about this situation. This further confirms that it was probably a family wedding. Mary seems to be working behind the scenes, maybe managing the supplies. Now, we should right away ask the question, why does Mary go to Jesus with this problem? Some people think it's, it's because she expected Jesus to perform a miracle. But don't forget, this is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed. So it seems unlikely that she was expecting him to perform a miracle. A more likely reason is simply the fact that Jesus was the oldest son, and Mary, by this point, had learned to rely on him, especially if, if Joseph had indeed passed away. So in other words, her request is simply this, please, my son, Jesus, do something about this situation. But Jesus' response is totally unexpected. It seems to come almost out of the blue. He says to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Where does that response come from? Why does Jesus respond in that way to his mother Mary? The address woman, it's not rude. It maybe comes across as rude in, in, the, in the English text. Maybe a better translation would be ma'am or something like that. But it's also not normally the way that a son speaks to his mother in the Greek. It's the way that you would respectfully speak to a stranger. And that's the point here. Jesus is distancing himself from Mary on purpose. Even though she's his mother, he, he needs her to know he will be ultimately subservient to his father's will and timing, which she, Mary, doesn't understand. And we can't know exactly what Mary was thinking, but judging by the Lord's response, it seems that she was hoping that the Lord Jesus would somehow save the day and maybe even win some honor for himself. She did know, of course, everything that the angel Gabriel told her. And she had heard other prophecies about Jesus from Anna, from Simeon. And from her perspective, with the Lord Jesus already being some maybe 30 years old, it didn't seem like any of that was taking place. It seemed like all those prophecies were coming to nothing. So now, here was a time where the Lord Jesus could win some honor and status for himself by saving the day for the groom. She might not have expected a miracle, but she certainly does seem to have expected him to do something to save the day. But what she didn't understand was God the Father's purposes for Jesus. So the Lord has to rebuke her. She may be his mother, but when it comes to God's purposes, there is no special access to God, not even for the mother of the Lord Jesus. She needs to learn to relate to him like any other woman and a sinful woman at that, as much in need of his salvation as anybody else. 
We can only imagine how hard that must have been for Mary to learn to relate to her own son in that way. But it reminds us of what the Lord Jesus himself taught elsewhere. When You can think of the time in Matthew 12 when he was told that his mother and his brothers were looking for him. And he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven, he is my brother or sister or mother. Or you can think of how he responded to a woman from the crowd who once cried out, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. And the Lord Jesus responds, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. There's no special access to the throne of God or no special influence on God's agenda. Jesus was not going to be exactly the kind of savior that Mary was hoping for. He was instead going to be the kind of Savior that she needed and that all sinners need. So the Lord Jesus responds to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? One of the most common themes that you see in John, it's true in the other Gospels too, is that everyone seems to assume that they know what the Messiah is going to be like. And they know what his mission is going to be all about. And for the most part, they get it very wrong. For the most part, they were looking for a Messiah who was going to save them from Roman oppressors rather than from their sins. And even Mary, even though the angel Gabriel told her that Jesus would save his people from their sins, even Mary didn't yet understand what Jesus would have to go through in order to do that. If only she knew what Jesus' mission would ultimately entail, she probably never would have even encouraged him to begin. The Lord adds, My hour has not yet come. And for the reader of the gospel, this should lead us to start asking, what is this hour that he's talking about? John repeats this phrase over and over again in the gospel until towards the end, on the night when the Lord was betrayed, he says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Lord Jesus didn't come to glorify Mary. He didn't even come to glorify himself, as he says in John 8, verse 54, but instead to glorify the Father. His hour had not yet come, and when it did, Mary and the disciples too would learn that his agenda was not at all what they had imagined. Well, what is that agenda then? That's our second point. Surprisingly, after the way that Jesus responds to Mary, he does still do something about the situation that she, she brings to him about the wine. But now we see he does so on his own terms, and we will see with a very clear, specific purpose. We're told that there were six stone water jars there, specifically for the Jewish rites of purification. It might be that John is making a special point by mentioning that there were six of them and not some other number. It wouldn't be the only time that John makes a point by using numbers. But it could also be that he says so because there really were just six of them and he's just being precise. In any case, though, John is very precise about their purpose. You notice that. They were there for the special Jewish rites of purification, probably to wash any important utensils at the wedding or for the guests to ritually wash their hands. 
So welcome to the Jewish world where all of these rituals take center stage. One must keep all of the law to the last and to the smallest detail because only then they believed, only then will the Messiah come when all of Israel keeps the whole law to the smallest detail. They knew the curse of Deuteronomy 28 that if they disobeyed God's law, they would go into exile. And now even though they were back in the land, they were still ruled by that foreign nation, the Romans, And the only solution, as they saw it, was to make a strict ritual out of the law so that all of Israel would keep it to the smallest detail. Hence, these jars for purification and for washing of hands and so forth. And of course, conveniently, they forgot, as the Lord Jesus mentioned, they forgot the weightier matters of the law. So in that context, then, Jesus does what is truly an amazing thing. He tells the servants around to fill those stone water jars to the brim. And then the Lord tells the servants to bring the water. Notice it doesn't yet say it had become wine. To bring that water to the master of the feast. From our perspective as the reader, we get to enjoy knowing what the servants and the master don't know. When he tastes the water, which at that point had become wine, it's clearly delicious and so much so that he goes to the groom who had run out of wine and he tells him in verse 10, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. So what's the point then? Of this sign. What's the Lord Jesus teaching us by doing this, by turning that water into wine? He isn't just trying to provide extra wine at his mother's request. We can see that already from the way that he responds to his mother. Instead, he has his mind fully fixed on the kingdom of God and on God's agenda. So, what is he teaching then by this sign? Well, if we're going to understand this miracle, we need to think about why John wrote his gospel in the first place. He tells us this explicitly in John 20, verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That was John's purpose for writing his entire gospel. And that's also then John's purpose for recording this sign in chapter 2. So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. Whatever Jesus is teaching us here with this miracle, that is what this is ultimately going to be about. So with that in mind, two things then clue us in to the point that Jesus is making with this sign. First, there's the fact that he uses these stone jars for purification in order to produce the wine. Notice verse 6 specifically mentions that they were jars for, for the Jewish rites of purification. It's an extremely odd place for Jesus to go. These jars would have been kept in an entirely different place than the caskets of wine. And surely the servants would have been wondering, what in the world do these jars of purification have to do with the pressing need for wine? The two had nothing to do with each other. 
And then this becomes especially striking and troubling when Jesus tells the servants to draw from those water jars and give that water to the master of the feast. If you just stop and think about it, it's extremely odd. And what would the servants have been thinking in that moment? The water in those jars was for ritual washing, for purification, for hands and for dishes. It wasn't water for drinking. We can only imagine what they must have been thinking. Is this some kind of practical joke? Is Jesus being some kind of prankster? Surely they must have thought this is not going to end well when the master of the feast tastes this water. It could ruin the wedding if he reacts badly to this joke, and it could bring serious shame on the groom. So that's one clue that points us to what Jesus is up to. But let's just leave that there for a moment and come to the second clue, and we'll bring these these two things together. The second clue is in the way that the master responds after tasting that wine. Notice, he doesn't just comment on how good the wine tastes. He doesn't just say, this is amazing, excellent wine. But he specifically makes that contrast between the first wine and the later wine, indicating how the later wine was so much better than the first wine. This, if you've read the Gospel of John, this now clues us in to some of the larger themes in this gospel. Remember what John told us in chapter 1, verse 17. He says, The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, the Jews, they thought nothing was greater than Moses and the law that came through him. For the Jews, just like for the master of the feast, what came first was obviously what was best. The Jews were looking for a restoration of what came first, a restoration of the old orders. If only things would go back to the days of Moses, that was when it was good. That's why, for example, the Samaritan woman rebukes the Lord Jesus. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob who built this well? And the answer is obvious. Of course, this man couldn't be greater than Jacob. Or in chapter 8, the Jews challenge Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? And again, the obvious answer is no, obviously not. Like the master of the feast, the Jews knew that obviously what came first was what was best. But John teaches us, no, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. Surprisingly, what came first, as good as it was, was not what was best. It pointed forward to something that was better. Now, it is understandable that the Jews were looking for a restoration of the way things used to be. Prophets in the Old Testament did often seem to speak in that way. Think of what we read from Jeremiah 31, where he prophesies in in numerous passages, Again, I will rebuild you, O virgin Israel. And yet Israel's former glory was never restored, at least not the way that it used to be. And why not? Well, because Israel's glory wasn't in the first place the might or the wealth or or, or the glory of the empire itself. Israel's glory was the glory of God that dwelt in the center of that empire, the glory of God's holiness, the glory of God's righteousness, and the salvation that God had promised he would bring to all nations through, through Israel. 
So the Israelites were looking for the wrong kind of restoration, failing to see the seriousness of their own sin before God. They were just hoping that all would be restored if they would just commit themselves to these empty rituals. But of course, empty rituals could do nothing to restore Israel to the glory of God or to bring about that salvation that God had promised. That's why the prophets also spoke about a new covenant that would be made not like the first covenant. And we read from that also in Jeremiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made before with their fathers when I took them out of Egypt. That covenant they broke, even though I was their husband. But now I will, write, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Israel was simply hoping for an old, a restoration of the old order. If only days could go back to the way they used to be, without recognizing that that old order had no answer to the problem of sin. It only pointed forward to something new and something better that would still come. The law was good. The law reflects God's holiness and it reveals God's will. But it also revealed the depth of Israel's sin and the depth of our sin. By itself, the law isn't ever going to save us. We we will never bring about God's kingdom by following rituals to the last detail. So the Lord Jesus turns that kind of thinking entirely on its head, and the Apostle John makes it super clear. No, surprisingly, what came first was not what was best. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we can see why then, why the Lord Jesus chose to draw that wine from those six stone water jars for purification. They stood there symbolizing the Jewish law with all of its rituals, man-made religious laws that they had set up in Moses' name so that they could somehow attain righteousness by following all of these commandments. And the Lord Jesus says, fill those up to the brim. And once filled to the brim, what do you get? Well, you get nothing but 150 gallons of stale, tasteless water. Surely it's a picture before God's eyes of man's efforts to achieve righteousness by following empty ritual laws. Empty rituals, whether it's the washing of hands or fasting or even church attendance, by themselves will never attain to the righteousness or holiness of God. They will never make us righteous before him. But then Christ, having filled, or you could even say fulfilled, the law to the brim, then draws out from it by his power, not stale, tasteless water, but deep and delicious Wine. See, what came first in the end wasn't what was best. Moses brought the law, and it was good, but it didn't do anything on its own to restore us to God or to give us the joy of salvation. Instead, like water for washing dishes, it simply revealed how dirty and how disgusting our sins are. So even Moses himself looked forward to the prophet who was still coming, who would satisfy the demands of God's law. 
what came last, as the master of the feast recognized in the end, what came last was actually best. And that's the point that the Lord Jesus is teaching us then with this sign. A new covenant needed to be made, not like that first covenant. And this new covenant would come by his power and through his work. Jesus' hour had not yet come, but it will. And he points us now ahead to that hour when he would take the filth that the law reveals in us and truly purify us, not with ritual water, but with his blood poured out for us, justice done in our place. The wine that the Lord Jesus brings to the master of the feast then also points to the joy and the celebration in that new covenant Something that we also read in the passages from Jeremiah where the Lord describes this new covenant. Where he says, they shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and of the herd. Their life, he says, shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow, and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Wine, of course, is the universal symbol of celebration. And the prophets in the Old Testament often use that lavish supply of wine to describe the conditions of the new covenant, the latter days when God's saving goodness would be revealed. Think of Isaiah 25, where the prophet says, On, on the mountain of the Lord of Ho- on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make a For all peoples, a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Or Isaiah 55, verse 1, very famous passage. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Or one more, Joel 2, verse 24, The threshing floors shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. This is how the Old, Old Testament prophets described the new kingdom, the glory and the joy and the celebration in that new kingdom that Christ was bringing. In that time of rejoicing then, the Lord Jesus teaches us, that time is only going to come through his work and by his power. Just like wine would only come out of that stale water by his work and by his power. So the Lord also then unambiguously points us to himself as the glorious fulfillment of God's salvation. And that's our third and very brief point. Verse 11 tells us that, This was the first of Jesus' signs, which he performed in Cana of Galilee. And as the first sign, it points us ahead to the big picture of what Jesus was accomplishing and what gospel he was proclaiming. The Lord's Lord's first sign also occurs at a wedding, because after all, he himself is the bridegroom. In fact, in the next chapter, John the Baptist points at him and says so explicitly, The one who has the bride, he says, is the bridegroom, and he calls himself nothing but the friend of the bridegroom. But the Lord Jesus is not like the failed bridegroom who ran out of wine. He's the one who gives us an unimaginable supply of wine, 150 gallons of wine. 
So by this sign, he also then points us forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb between Christ and his people, where they, where they will say, in the words of Revelation 19, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Well, verse 11 in our text, John 2, verse 11, also tells us that, this, that through this sign, the Lord Jesus manifested his glory. To hear right at the beginning of the gospel, we already begin to see in the very first glimpses of Christ's ministry, the glory that John told us was coming in chapter 1. Think of John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, Christ's glory is the glory of God himself. The prophets eagerly looked forward to the salvation that God would bring. And Christ makes it clear that salvation is the salvation that Christ brings. His glory is the glory of God and his work is the work of God. And it comes through the power of God, which is his power. So that salvation that he would bring, that God would bring, Christ makes it clear right here in the beginning, that salvation is only coming by my work, by my power. Well, we also read in verse 11 that the disciples see this glory and they believe in him. It doesn't mean they fully understood his mission. We know from later in the gospel that they obviously didn't fully understand his mission. But they recognized that he was doing the work of God through the power of God. They recognized he was the Savior that God had promised. And that's also what the the Apostle John then calls us to do as we read this passage and think about it. Again, as he writes in chapter 20, These signs were written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. The glory of God is seen in the glory of Jesus. The work of God is the work that Jesus did. The salvation of God is the salvation that Jesus brought. And he is the only way to the Father. So then when the disciples saw what the Lord Jesus did, they saw the work of God in him. And the Apostle John wants us to see the work of God in Jesus as well. To run to him as the only only one that God sent. Through the work of Christ then, the promises that God gave to his people long ago, such as the ones that we read from Jeremiah 31, those are our promises as well. We, after all, are the nations that were far off, probably more than any other nation being on virtually the opposite side of the world. That joyful cause for celebration then, pictured in that lavish supply of wine that the Lord Jesus brings, that celebration is ours, because through him, we too are invited to that wedding feast of the Lamb. And we will also sit together at his table with Israel and God's servants. So then believe in Christ, the one whom God has sent. He has fulfilled the law for us, and he invites us then into the joy of the Father. Let us trust in no one and nothing else apart from him. Don't look back 
Don't look back to the way that things used to be. Don't set your hope on a restoration of the glory days of old, whether that's in Israel or even in our own country. God brought those days to an end for a reason. Instead, look forward to the grace and mercy that God is bringing to broken lives even today and to the glorious kingdom founded on God's grace that he will still bring in the future. Set your sights on it. Put your hope in it and see Christ's glory in it as the disciples saw Christ's glory in that miracle that he did at the wedding feast of Cana. That is where we are going. So let us leave then behind the sin that still clings to us and let us come to him again in repentance and in full confidence that the life that he lived in our place and the death that he died in our place is sufficient to fulfill all of the demands of the law so that we may rejoice with him in the outpouring of his mercy that we have in the gospel. Knowing then that all these things are promised to us and offered also to all who turn to him in repentance and trust, let us also then give him our whole lives. Amen.